0: wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. Had you guys told me when I was growing up in Los Angeles in the 70s that one day I'd be a resident of New Jersey, Uh, (laughs) I'd have probably done a spit take of my fresca. But here I am, yes, a proud resident of New Jersey, the very state that turned out a guy named Larry Cantor. Larry grew up in a tiny house in Elmwood Park, New Jersey. His mom was an orphan. Uh, When his dad lost his liquor store job when Larry was a baby, he ended up taking bets on college basketball games. They were not wealthy, if you understand this. But then Larry himself, as he grew up, worked from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. every summer day. You heard me correctly, 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. every summer day to pay for college. But that Jersey boy He ended up at the Federal Reserve for the United States of America, guiding the very organization that sets interest rates. And then, you know, the rest is history. He's lured to Wall Street, J.P. Morgan, Barclays, hedge funds. And today he joins me as my guest on Everyone Talks to Liz, Larry Cantor of Atlas Merchant Capital. Hi, Larry.
1: Hi, Liz. Yeah, I'm a Jersey boy and a big Bruce fan.
0: No, both can you be years. one without being the other
1: you can't no way no way <laughs> yeah. I,
0: i've known you how many years 20
1: uh, something like that yeah we've been uh, it was great getting reacquainted with you on your show um at the uh close stock close a great show and i really enjoyed seeing you again you're, yeah you're because a-
0: larry a- used to come on my show when i was at cnbc um
1: that's true.
0: Yes, my previous life, but uh, yeah. it was great to have you on the other day, and yeah. and and we started talking in the commercial break, and that's right. when I realized, oh my God, you have to be a guest on Everyone Talks to Liz. What a story you have! Uh, let's let's just let our viewers and our listeners know where that all began and what what it was like growing up and hearing the stories of real hardship that your parents endured.
1: You know, they didn't, it was the kind of thing where they didn't talk about it a lot. It was more just asking questions. And, um, you know, my mother grew up in an orphanage, but still had her mom nearby. So she wasn't really an orphan. You know, they had come from, she was born in Montreal her mother came over with three kids. Uh, my mother's father passed away when she was a baby, and so she was working long hours. They didn't live in the greatest area in the Bronx, so she put her kids in the orphanage. Um, and, uh, mm. you know, my mother was a tough cookie. She actually just passed away in July at the age of 98, wow. uh, fiercely independent. But what I did notice growing up in New Jersey, you know, we had a modest house, but, you know, we didn't suffer or anything, but how proud my parents were, you would have thought we lived in a mansion. I mean, for them, just, you know, my dad was a single child, also no father, and he and his mom rented a room in someone else's apartment. One thing I didn't mention, Liz, which is sort of a weird thing, my father's best friend from the ages of 12 to 10 to 13 was Alan Greenspan.
0: Are you kidding
1: who lived across the street in Washington Heights.
0: A former Federal Reserve chief.
1: <laughs> yeah, Greenspan had his own apartment. So after school, you know, my father didn't want to go in this strange apartment, so he hung out at Greenspan's place all the time. And when I was getting my Ph.D., Greenspan hadn't been fed chairman yet, but he kept saying, Larry, you know, you got to talk to Alan. We were good friends. And, you know, I wanted to make it on my own. But I eventually <laughs> met him. <laughs> You know, when I was at J.P. Morgan, I had left the Fed because I worked for Volcker. Greenspan, it was funny, just coincidentally, he was on the board of J.P. Morgan, and he moved to be chairman of the Fed. And uh, so, you know, I'd come back and visit once in a while. And, you know, I figured one time, you know what, and see the senior staff. So I went up to the chairman's office, and I knew his assistant because it was the same as uh, Volcker's assistant, I says the chairman around she said, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to be around today. And my dad, I mentioned who my dad was and was his best friend. And so while I was around at one of the meetings at the Fed, all of a sudden there was a call. The chairman wants to see you. And uh, yes, I walked in <laughs> and he started telling me stories of him and my father playing touch football with a rolled up newspaper. And
0: oh, my and, gosh. Uh, Wait know, a minute. Please uh, tell me your father Got to see you get to the Federal Reserve. Was he alive for that?
1: Oh yeah. Oh, thank he was. Goodness. Yeah, okay. he saw. Um, in fact, he was around all the way through uh, my J.P. Morgan years and the beginning of my Barclays years. Um, very proud, and um, you know, uh, I, you know, he's. Uh, it was funny because when I met Greenspan, my father remembered his childhood friends based on position that they played in baseball. And he used to say, Greenspan, you know, for a little guy, he was a hard-hitting first baseman. So when I <laughs> met Greenspan, I said, you know, my father remembers you. I didn't say little guy. I said, as a hard-hitting first baseman. And, Liz, if you could have seen the smile on his face, he nodded, smiled. He goes, I was a pretty good ball player. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> if I just said you were the greatest chairman in the history, it wouldn't have made him as no. happy. no. As that, and then subsequently, a couple months later, he was making a speech at the Economic Club in New York, and I attended. And it was some big thing had happened in the markets, and you know, there's crowds of people and press. And he's walking up to the podium, and he sees me, and he beckons me over, and starts whispering, "How's your father?" You know. You know, you and your, you, me and your father made up, a, you know, starts talking for a couple of minutes before, oh. he comes up and then all the reporters came over to me. What, how do you know Greenspan? What did he say? <laughs> I said it was personal, you know, it was a, just a funny thing. But.
0: Well, you look like a big macher, because you <laughs> yeah, are. <exactly>. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. That yeah. is just amazing. <laughs> Talk great. about six degrees of separation.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. And Greenspan let's, was a jazz musician, you know. I don't know if you knew that. I but, knew he uh, played music. Yeah, he did. And my father saw him and, and with my mom saw him at a jazz club before I was born in, you know, Greenspan you know, he was in a pretty big jazz band, you know, not Tommy Dorsey or Benny Good, but one of the top jazz bands, which as you know, at that time in the late forties, right huge. after the war it was huge. Yes. That was the music, that's like rap music is today and that's what they thought he was gonna be but
0: it sounds like your parents were lovely, warm, and loving people. They just didn't have yeah. a lot of money, and therefore, knowing that you wanted to go to college, yep. you had to shoulder most of it yourself.
1: Yeah, my dad said, look, um, I'm going to give you $1,000 a year. Um, I don't want you supporting me You know, when I retire. I ended up actually supporting my mother for a while, but... So, you know, you, you can do it yourself. So, you know, I immediately realized since I grew up in New Jersey, Rutgers was the place I could afford. And, um, you know, I worked while I was going to school. And uh, as you said, I worked in resort hotels. Um,
0: Where, on the shore?
1: A, a waiter. No, this was in the Catskill Mountains. At one time, the Catskill Mountains, the Congress oh, sure. Singers had all the big resorts. Frank Sinatra used to go up there, Jerry Lewis, and you could go there. They didn't pay you a salary, basically it was room and board, but it was all tips. And so I hustled, you know, I was a waiter, which meant getting up early for breakfast and setting up. I uh, was a bellhop in between meals. And then at night I worked in the nightclub as a nightclub guy. So
0: what acts did you see? Was this Grossinger's or another one?
1: I was at one of the medium-sized hotels, so I didn't get to see the big... You know, Jerry Lewis used to go up there. I mean, they had big acts there, right. even Woody Allen, but I didn't get to see any of the big acts. But, um, you know, the one thing was, you know, I remember in college, you know, my friends, you know, I was into... were into partying and having a good time, and I was too, but I used to sneak off and study, and the whole time I was there, was thinking, you know, what am I going to do with this? And I think, Looking back, a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was paying for it. You know, when you're paying for something and working hard for oh, sure. it, you want to make sure that you're going to do something. So the whole time I was thinking, you know, what, what am I going to do with this? And I started out as a math major, switched to economics. I didn't even know what economics was, they didn't offer it in my high school. And all of a sudden, I, I loved it because it was a way to apply my math to something why well, I thought was very interesting. And then decided, you know, um, I loved college. I loved the atmosphere on campus. I think, you know, I want to be a professor. And that meant, you know, getting a PhD because that was kind of the license you needed to become a professor. So I didn't have any money. I got married at 20 years old, believe it or not.
0: After wow.
1: To my sweetheart, who I'd met at 14. We're still married. We now wow. Have children, six grandchildren. It's really, literally... When I, we were 14 years old, and I remember we kissed and knew immediately we were going to get married. It's Come
0: crazy. on, and really?
1: We told everybody, I remember betting a girl I was sitting next to in English class a $1,000 that I was going to marry her. <gasps> she said, you're just a kid. What do you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, you know, it's funny. I ran into that girl when I was teaching at Lehigh. Did
0: she ever pay on?
1: Ran into her at the grocery store. I said, Sue, you know, I, she, and then she was so excited to see me. And I said, you know, I'm with Sheila and, you know, let's get together. She was married. Kids, and then I said, hey, remember that $1,000 bet? She got all red. I never heard from her. I was kidding around, you know, but never heard from her again. But it's a true story. And so, you know, I, what was I going to do? How was I going to go to grad school? So I applied to 10 schools. Ohio State was my last choice. Not that it was a shabby place, but they offered me a full university fellowship, which was tuition and fees and a five thousand dollar tax free stipend. And so
0: Wow, that's a lot
1: there. Yeah, and so that was where I went. My wife went to work as a social worker and I um I went I, I you know, I spent the year struggling through getting a PhD in economics, well, which did, ended up being well worth it.
0: Did you take on jobs during graduate school to help with the bills?
1: I did a little bit. Yeah. I taught, there was a local school there called Otterbein college. I know and it. I went up there and, and taught classes as it was, I wasn't a professor I was a lecturer uh, while I was doing that. Um, but, but, you know, I was, you know, my wife was working. We lived in a little apartment and, um, I was getting this stipend, and, and you know, my wife used the car to go to work, so I, get, I went everywhere on my bike. I was in fantastic physical shape <laughs> because that was my mode of transportation during those Even
0: years. in the snow? I lived in the Buckeye State for seven yeah. years because I worked in Columbus at WSYX Channel oh, 6. Oh, so you know the area. Oh, yeah, and then I moved to Cleveland, but um, riding a bike through much of the year is to me, nearly impossible. There, it's freezing. It is.
1: It is, and I, I shouldn't say this there, but I did a little hitchhiking back then. It was more. <laughs> it was
0: okay back then
1: <laughs> to to get to campus and. Uh, well, the, so. I,
0: as I recall, the PhD process would have been pretty rigorous, right? And oh my god! And yeah. forty people, as I understand it, entered the Ohio State Economics PhD. Only a handful would end up with their PhD.
1: Yeah, they had, they were, most of the professors there, the senior ones, were University of Chicago PhDs, and they were trying to get the reputation up, and you know, they're very free market oriented, so they would take a lot of people and then knock them out, and they made it clear uh, that that was the way it was. It wasn't a very good atmosphere as far as cooperation, (laughs) you know, because it was pretty competitive, but at the end of the first year, I think they knocked out about half the people. They had they gave you two what they called qualifying exams, um, four hour exams, one in um, in economic theory and one in mathematical statistics, and you only got one second shot at it. I was determined; I was only going to do it once, and I was I would leave, and so I passed them both.
0: Thank God!
1: Um, oh my gosh! And, and I mean... then you know that was in a way just the beginning because. Most PhD programs, there were two areas of specialization. We were required to do three, and you had to take four-hour exams in each of them. And then after all that, which took a few years, there was an oral exam that a team of professors would give you on all this that you had to pass. So um, it was – I'll tell you, when I first got there, I nearly flunked out in my first year because – I was able to go through high school and even college, just cramming the night before. This thing it was hard. I could not do that. I, I took
0: a, I took Econ 101 at UC Berkeley, and yeah. I that was my worst grade. Ironic that I'm now an anchor on a business network, but hey, uh, the whole guns well, and stopped. butter thing, I just couldn't deal with it.
1: Right. So it was it was it was pretty miserable in terms of doing the work, but. Um, I got through it, and I um, managed to, and then, you know, the other thing about it is, um, and this isn't just Ohio State, but there's, I read some statistic that only about half the people that get through all that finish their dissertation. They call them ABDs, all but dissertation. Um, (laughs) So it's, they really don't teach how to do independent Mm -hmm. research, they teach how to, understand other people's research and once so. you
0: got that PhD which we know yes. stands for piling it higher and deeper you <laughs> yeah. you actually you you got recruited by Lehigh to be a professor what did they do right. to recruit you to go to Lehigh
1: the chairman of the department at Lehigh kept calling me and I liked the people there and he was a bit of one of those nutty professor types and I would t- I, I kept saying to him look I'm you know, I'm going to wait to finish my dissertation. He said, "Okay, so next week's not good. It's <laughs> next week, how about the week after?" And he kept calling. And finally, I said, "You know, I'll just go out there and uh, just for you know, see what it's like." And I really liked all the professors. And I said, "The hell with it. I, I like the atmosphere there. I like the department. Mm-hmm. It would do, the economics department was, was in a business school. A lot of times they're in liberal arts. And I, I was my dissertation was in." economics and finance, so I wanted to be in a business school. Um, And um, it worked out, although, you know, it wasn't like being a student, which is obvious, but, you know, it wasn't as much fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, I ended up doing a sabbatical at the Kansas City Fed and um, realized that I liked applied research a lot more than academic research, you know, the president of, as you know, the Federal Reserve Banks are on the FOMC, and I got involved in briefing and you know policy work, and I thought, wow, this is great. And so uh, even though I got an offer from the Kansas City Fed, my wife and I being from the New York area, we didn't want to live there, mm. and our family was here. But a year later, I ended up going to the Federal Reserve Board in Washington.
0: That's, so, to me, the most incredible move, not just because... Of the connection to Alan Greenspan and your father yeah. growing up with him, but right. the Federal Reserve Board of the United right. States of America, and this was during some very difficult times for the country. Paul Volcker, who just passed, and for yeah. whom you have lots of respect, I know, oh, yeah. he slayed stagflation, meaning a stagnant economy, but hyperinflation. You... Yeah. Did what you advised? He he asked your opinions. This is just a, an American dream for an economist.
1: Yeah, I listen to this. I was 33 years old, and so what ha- the way it worked. There, I don't know if you know this, but the board has about 200 PhD economists. And They're doing some of them are doing regulatory stuff. It's not all policy, but a huge staff. It's renowned. About at that time, it's changed now, but at that time, about a dozen. We're on what they called the briefing rotation. So every Monday morning, the staff briefs the board, including the chairman. There's three briefings. There's one, what they call domestic real. That's the economy, basically, labor markets, GDP, retail sales, et cetera. One domestic financial, which is what I did. That's markets, what's going on with bank lending, all that kind of stuff. And then there's an international briefing. You have to take a briefing course where – you give oral presentations and get critiqued in front of everybody. It's a humbling. And uh, so, somehow they chose me to be on this. Uh, I think I was good at making presentations. And all of a sudden I find myself sitting at the end of a table that's got to be 30 feet long or more. It's the, board, it's the table in the boardroom. And at the other end, there's Paul Volcker, and I don't know if you remember. We used to call him Paul. Paul, six foot seven. seven.
0: Yeah, six foot seven. Uh, he
1: was a legend by then because I I didn't get there at the beginning of the eighties. It was sort of later and late in his tenure, and smoking the cigar, sitting at the end, and you know, you walk into the briefing room, and there's a lot of everybody's talking, and there's you know a, a pile of tables and charts and so forth, the chairman, whose office is right off the boardroom, walks in. It's like a courtroom. Everybody sits down. It's complete silence. It's very formal. He looks at the papers and looks up, and there's a list of the briefers. He goes, Mr. Cantor. And you say, thank you, Mr. Chairman. That's how formal is. You talk for about five minutes, ten minutes. (laughs) Then you say, that concludes my remarks, Mr. Chairman. And then the scary part is Q&A. I was so scared, Liz. You know, they do a run through an hour before with the senior staff, and my voice was about five octaves higher than normal. I mean, <laughs> like helium. I didn't know. You know, what am I? What the hell am I doing briefing Paul Volcker? You know, I'm a third. And when somehow when I sat down in the room, and it happened. I just I don't know what it was. I was laser focused. Apparently, did a very good job. Answered the questions. Um, You rose to the
0: occasion.
1: Yeah, I rose to the occasion so much so that I ended up, they chose me to do some special projects for the chairman. And it was then I learned, you know, it's funny, I was a professor, I taught in MBA programs, PhD programs, I taught about monetary policy. I really didn't know how it worked (laughs) until I got there. Great. You you, You know what I mean? The chairman's got one vote out of 12 on the FOMC. How does he get so much power? And being there, I learned exactly how it really works. <laughs> and uh, I, I'll tell you a quick story. I hope I'm not talking too much, but I. Um, so th- back then, do you remember, Liz, where they used to pay, uh, target the money supply? There was M one, M two, M three, and it was a way to hide the fact that there were Volker was going to. Take interest rates to levels you nobody ever saw before, and
0: up to so, about what twelve it was to
1: twenty percent, yeah, at one yeah time to
0: eighteen percent. My, I remember my sister in the eighties bought a house and she thought she got a great mortgage at eighteen percent and not twenty percent, right.
1: right? Exactly. So one time, it was late in the year because the, the, this stuff was done annually right before the beginning of the year, and there were a lot of people on vacation. They tabbed me to write the staff paper which you know gave it was basically three options a b c and the whole paper you know explaining this process and it was to be presented to the FOMC and so you know I wrote this paper got input from senior staff and so forth handed it in they liked the draft i get it back and i notice handwriting that is not the chief of staff and i had a table in there showing for each money supply path, what the interest rate would be. And there was a big X over it. And I said, you know, the, peop- the FOMC members are going to want to know what this implies for interest rates. Just take it out. <laughs> and it was presented to the staff, uh, sorry, to the is coming from the staff. What they didn't know was the chairman, obviously, had taken a look at it. It was always arm's distance. I never showed it to the chairman i'd showed it to the chief of staff and it became clear to me he was showing it to the chair this is one way the chairman exercises power because the staff there the culture at the fed is total loyalty to the chairman
0: yeah well and and let me interrupt there because sure you ended up being incredibly loyal to volcker and this was a crazy time I know you have some crazy stories. America was not happy with Paul Volcker. He did what he felt he had to do to slay hyperinflation, and that was to spike interest rates. And even his president, whom he served, Ronald Reagan, even though the Fed is an independent organization, yes, uh, was not really happy. But what was it like during that time? I mean, I would imagine people were out with torches.
1: Well, there was one t- – first of all, you would never know it being around Volcker. I'm sure inside he he was killing him, but he acted totally confident that he was doing the right thing. To- you know, this is – he was a real statesman. He, he knew this was going to be tough. He was getting a lot more pressure inside than people realized because back then there was a decorum – You didn't, the president didn't criticize the Fed publicly, but behind the scenes, it was intense. There was a time when somebody came in with a gun looking (laughs) for Volcker into the board. At that time, the board security had no weapons. They actually went, went in with the gun. Now, the chairman had Secret Service protection. There was one Secret Service. I think it's still true today. Um, and they ran out because diagonally across the street is the State Department, and those security people did have weapons. And the, the State Department security came in, <laughs> but literally they never got up there. They subdued the guy, but he was on. There was marches; the farmers all marched on on the Fed. Um, he was under intense pressure, but was determined to do the right thing. And as you pointed out, it set the stage for a couple of decades of great economic performance because, as you said, we had stagflation. We had high inflation and high unemployment, and he broke the back of inflation, uh, went through terrible recession to do it, but he had a lot of guts, a lot of confidence. Uh, When you looked at him, he felt there was no doubt he was doing the right thing. I must
0: ask you, what do you think of the atmosphere today where President Trump is very publicly Screaming and screaming at Jay Powell, the current Federal Reserve Chair, in, in a Twitter verse that uh, reaches millions and millions of people.
1: Yeah, so everybody who worked at the Fed is horrified that this is going on because there's nothing more important to the long term health of the economy than an independent central bank. Can you ima- And by the way, there's massive evidence. Countries that don't have independent central banks are the ones that have these bouts of hyperinflation and uh, horrible recessions. And because if you let people who are subject to being reelected every four years, the re- give them the reins on expanding the money supply, you can always make things look better in the short run. At huge cost in the long run. Uh, So uh, in fact, you know, what's interesting when I was leaving the Fed back then, we didn't even the Fed did not even announce when they changed rates. I don't know if you remember that there there was a whole group of people called Fed watchers that would just try to decide. Read the tea leaves. Right. Read the tea leaves because they didn't even announce it. When I left, I mentioned to one of the senior staff when I left for J.P. Morgan, you know, at some point you guys are going to have to have more transparency. And he said to me, if we do, if we did that, every time we raised rates, we'd probably get called up on the hill. Now that's not happened. But but when I look at what's going on now, I think back to that. And yes. I, you know, I think maybe too much transparency is not a good thing because now the Fed's attacked all the time. And again, I think that independence is, is critical. I well, think they've maintained it to the best that they can. But this is we're getting into a dangerous area here, I think.
0: It sounds like it. It feels like it. Uh, they yeah. have to be able to make these decisions without politics uh, leaning them right. uh, in one direction or another or hanging like that sort of Damocles over their head. You ended right. up being recruited by J.P. Morgan from the Fed, right? And right. And therein began your career on Wall Street.
1: Yeah. Via
0: London, right?
1: Well, I went to J.P. Morgan first in New York, and then they sent me to London to be the chief European economist there. Um, But I loved working at the Fed. There were so many brilliant people there. I had such respect for Volcker, who used to lecture us about doing public service. He was a real believer in public service. and. At that time, you know, when Greenspan became chairman, he got them off the federal pay scale, and so it became more difficult to recruit people from the Fed, but back then, we were on the federal pay scale. Believe it or not, Liz, Paul Volcker was making, I think it was $55,000 a year, and there was nobody on the staff making more than the chairman. I had three children very quickly because I had a daughter and then twin boys, and so Within three years, I went from zero to three kids. My wife dropped out of the workforce to take Mm. care of the kids. And Mm -hmm. I still wanted to stay at the Fed because I loved it. And somehow J.P. Morgan found out about me. I I, I don't know how, but, and started calling. And I kept saying I wasn't interested and listing all these reasons.
0: They pulled a Lehigh on you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was funny because this was like, you know, there's a famous Groucho Marx line I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. And this was the converse of that. The more I said no, they weren't used to government employees refusing, and J.P. Morgan especially. Uh, so they kept getting more interested. And in one conversation I said, I mentioned that the cost of living was higher in New York than 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 Washington and this this was a the language they clearly spoke because they called me back in about five minutes and said you know we'd like to help you with a deposit on a house and I went oh. home that night and told my wife about it and she goes you know why don't you go up we we're pretty we we're struggling <laughs> why don't you go up there and uh, see uh, what what it's like up there <laughs> so I said yeah maybe it'll be a good experience and I went up and ended up taking the job and um and that was uh, who
0: was running J.P. Morgan at that
1: time. Um, it was Lou. Um, what is this? right before Dennis Lou Preston, Lewis Preston was running J.P. Morgan, and he was succeeded by Dennis Weatherstone. And um, you know, it was interesting because um, when I was there, he you know obviously they knew I came from the Fed, and you know, Volker was a legend at the time, and. Um, They actually, it shocked me that the Reagan people I knew through Lou Preston was actually asking for names of possible successors to Paul Volcker, (laughs) (laughs) which amazed me, but it tells you, shows you how much disdain they had for what Volcker had done. Well,
0: Larry, today you're at Atlas, and uh, of course it's founded by Bob Diamond, who used to run Barclays. You also did a stint at Barclays. I did. You... You now really kind of call your own shots, and I would love to know, though, having grown up the way you did, with your parents yeah. having endured the hardships that they did, what is today your definition of success?
1: Boy, that's, um, that's a good question. It's not an easy one to answer because, you know, when I look at my parents, they were so happy. With what they had. I mean, from what they started, having their own house, they never thought in a million years, and having two sons, you know, I have a younger brother, um, and we were very happy family. Mm. Um, and so, one of the things I counsel people is because, you know, I had a job that was pretty intense, all, all my jobs really, and I was global head of research at Barclays. I had about a 1,000 people in research in all the areas all over the world. I traveled a lot. It was intense, but Mm. I always counsel people do not neglect your personal life because I think it affects your work when you don't have a happy personal life. I'm so lucky. I have a great wife. I have tremendous kids. I now have six grandchildren. I'm close with all my kids. Whenever I wasn't working, I was hanging out with my kids and I think that foundation of a good family really helped my career because I never had to worry about that stuff. And, you know, so um, I I think, you know, success is being happy with yourself. Um, I Personally, for me, it's having a a, a good family around you, Uh, you know, people you love, people you respect, people who have your back. Um, I, you know, for, you know, and I've been very fortunate to, to be financially successful and financially independent, but you went for your
0: passion, you know, Warren Buffett always says, pick your passion first, and then your profession will come from that. And then your success will come in turn. You loved economics from the minute you took that first class at Rutgers. And because you followed that path. Perhaps that's why you found such incredible success because you were so fulfilled by it.
1: You're so right. I mean, one thing I always tell my kids, whatever you do, be passionate about what you do because if if you if you're not, you probably won't be very good at it and you probably won't be happy. So follow your passion. The other thing is, you know, like everybody, I had ups and downs in my career. So their career, there was a time at J.P. Morgan I wasn't happy. I didn't like or respect my boss, but I kept at it. And one of the things, if you figure out whatever job you're in, what what are the objectives of the team on them? What are they really trying to do? Make sure you understand that, and then work every single day to try to achieve that objective. And if you do that, and you perform well, and you have the right attitude, good things are probably going to happen. That's what happened to me. I'm sure I had some luck along the way, too. But whatever I was doing, I was, A, hey, I was passionate about it. You're right, about, about economics and the jobs I was doing. Um, but, you know, just strived every day to try to make whoever I was working for, whether it was the Fed, J.P. Morgan, Barclays, that institution, and even now Atlas, succeed in what they were trying to do, um, Good things happen.
0: <laughs> I sure do, Larry. It is such an honor to have you as my guest on Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you so much.
1: And thank you, Liz. You're a true professional, and it's great reacquainting with you, and I look forward to being on your show in the future.
0: Larry Cantor, who worked in the Kansas City Fed, worked for Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve during the dramatic 80s, worked for J.P. Morgan, Barclays, and now Atlas, and a friend of mine. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And that'll do it for this episode of Everyone Talks to Liz. I I hope you guys understand, you know, Larry tells a perfect story that is imperfect. And that's what makes it, if this makes any sense, perfect. Because one foot in front of the other didn't come from great wealth, dealt with different issues, had to work sometimes and only sleep four hours a night to work his way through college, but he found such success and happiness. And... Like we say, you got to gotta see some raindrops before you see that rainbow. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys have a lovely week. And we'll see you again on the Clayman Countdown, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network.